This is Black Talk, where global black experts meet local voices. Stories meet historical contexts. Professional teachings are explored and black accomplishments are celebrated. Rhoda Redock is a sociologist and development studies scholar with expertise in a range of areas, including feminist and gender studies and critical race and ethnic studies. As an activist in the Caribbean women's movement, Dr. Redock was a founding member and first chair of the Caribbean Association for Feminist Research and Action. Her advocacy positioned her as a pioneer of gender and development studies programs. Dr. Redock was recently elected to the executive committee of the International Sociological Association and is the first Caribbean person elected to that role. Dr. Redock has also served on the Council and Advisory Committee of the Caribbean Studies Association. She is a former Deputy Campus Principal of the University of the West Indies St. Augustine Campus and Head of the Institute for Gender and Development Studies. In this episode, Dr. Redock speaks to what it means to practice decolonial feminism and decolonize our academic institutions defines Pan-American feminism, points listeners to the wisdom of African and Caribbean women thought leaders, and examines the future of the gender and development studies field. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Abigail Isaac, with our guest, Dr. Rhoda Redock. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. So I've been reading a lot um, about about your advocacy and, and your scholarship over the past few weeks. And you've been vocal about the role of, of women in developing states, but particularly uh, women in the Caribbean and women of color in, in, in development work. So it's something that I think we're excited to dive into a little bit today, more particularly kind of discussing Pan-Africanism and how you do or don't relate to that kind of work and that theory, and then unpack it a little bit more to understand what decolonial feminism looks like and, and means. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things I think that we're very curious to, to, to ask you, so I'm excited to get started. Thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me. Now, you've served in various important capacities at the University of West Indies, I would mind if you can tell our audience a little bit about those positions that you've served in. And as a woman in the university's hierarchy, uh, you've had to probably overcome a lot of obstacles in order to get to where you are. Well, I joined the University of the West Indies in 1985, but I'm alumni, proud alumni of both the St. Augustine and the Mona campuses. And I think it was really a privilege that I got the opportunity to return to the UWI immediately and completing my doctoral dissertation. So my history in the UWI, it has been a bit different because from very early, I was involved in feminist scholarship and involved in building and developing women's and gender studies throughout the entire UWI, working with colleagues on all the campuses. And I think Developing that program of women and gender studies 
and the institutionalization of the center, now Institute for Gender and Development Studies in 1983, I think was one, a very important achievement that we made. And I must acknowledge support that we had in this from especially the Netherlands Ministry for Development Cooperation. And I was a graduate student in the Netherlands prior to that. So I was, I was a part of that development. But I must say that my colleagues on the UWI campus were very important in grounding the project within the UWI. And I think that what was different about the IGDS, we insisted in being multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary. So we were not located in a faculty. And that's the situation up to today. The IGDS is located in the vice chancellery, which gives us greater flexibility to work with other programs and departments, etc. And it also gave us more autonomy of how we could proceed. So, so I was founding head of the Center for Gender and Development Studies. So I didn't go through the faculty route. And then from being head of the Center for Gender and Development Studies, I did not become a dean or anything. I went directly to be deputy principal. So that's a big jump for me because working in the gender studies setting, primarily women, it was a feminist space. We disagreed on many things. There were power relations, but we all had a similar goal. We worked together. We were very respectful. And as a result, we achieved a lot. But going at that level into uh, the administration was a major challenge. I think I did my best, but as a social scientist and gender studies scholar, I was in a hierarchy that comprised almost 90% engineers. Yeah. So that's the major challenge. And mostly, mostly men, for course. Yeah, male engineers, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, thank you for sharing. I think it's clearly been, been a journey for you through several positions and in different academic institutions. And something that I'm very curious about is how kind of along the way you developed a decolonial feminist praxis and how those contexts shaped you, or maybe if there are notable experiences that shaped your political orientation and, and how how you grew into that. Yeah, I think I think that our entering the academia, we entered with a kind of activist position. It was this activist approach that I took into my administration, into my teaching, so that even though I was presented with these challenges, many of the lessons from being an activist were very useful in that process. But coming to decolonial feminism, I think that I am, of course, a child of the 70s, which was a radical period. And therefore, I was very much influenced by socialism, Marxism, new left political economy. And I think that much of our feminism and Caribbean feminism at that time grew out of a critique of the older left. And therefore, we still had a, a global understanding. We had a critical paradigm. We were anti-imperialist, anti-racist. And we, you know, we looked at the world in a global and in a way, a decolonial sense, even before the term became popular. So in a way, my work has continued to be that way. And what is now referred to as decolonial politics, I think in many ways reflects a lot of the critical work of that time. I think the major difference now 
is the challenge to heteronormativity and that, uh, that was there at the time, but not as well developed and not as prominent. That critical questioning and a look at the larger intersectionality of a women's situation, race, class, gender, etc., uh, was already there in the work that we were doing. What I would say is in the Caribbean, Pan-Africanism provided the space for the early feminists to emerge. And that's why it was important to me, because most of the early feminists in the Caribbean came out of that Pan-Africanist framework. So for me, Pan-Africanism to me is almost part of that decolonial feminism in that it's a feminism that acknowledges the ways in which uh, Western colonialism has influenced the world for many, many centuries, how so much of our thinking and lives has been shaped by it, but also how that has affected those countries in the North as well. And that's what I really like about the concept of coloniality, that it recognizes that those countries in the North also have work to do in terms of their colonial position. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of colonial work that Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, North America have to do. It's not only a question for those of us located in the global south. So that's my thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a tendency sometimes uh, in our scholarship, especially when we started to embrace feminist scholarship. Uh, there's a tendency to think that all feminists are the same. So I I, I just wonder how you consider how you would define African feminism and what makes it different from other forms of feminism? Well, you know, when I was quite young in this field, I had to define feminism for myself because the time when feminism was under attack, it was under attack from the right and from the left. And I had come up with a very simple definition, which many others have since used. I don't know if it would still be politically correct, but basically what it was was that Feminist, feminism referred to, first of all, an understanding of the inequality, subordination, oppression of women and the conscious action to change that. So it was a very simple definition. It was one of awareness and action. I usually added to that, that there are many different understandings of the causes of feminism. And as a result, there are many different understandings of how it should be addressed. You know, there's always a debate of whether feminism is singular with many parts or whether it's different feminisms. I think, I think both are possible, but I do think that, that there's a basic core of what a feminist is. That is someone who recognizes women's subordination, but who actively seeks to do something about it. And this doesn't necessarily only mean joining an organization, although we like you to join an organization, or marching, although we'd like you to join us in demonstration. But it could be how you bring up your children. It could be how you teach in school. It could be, you know, how you relate to your spouse or partner. So so that's the action that would come out of that consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, this is interesting. I just follow up with you a little bit on this. I was just recently uh, involved in a project for the International Journal. We did a special issue of the International Journal, uh, which really was a way of reflecting on the work of Jane Papar. All right, yeah. Yeah, I know Jane, yeah. 
she's a Canadian feminist uh, and African scholar. Um, she she raises this question about the differences in feminism, and she uses what her husband Tim Shaw calls feminism with mess. In other words, the the multiple branches of feminism. Um, because when a person in North America talks about feminism, it's quite different from a feminist in Africa or feminist in Asia or the Caribbean. Do you see uh, that differentiation in your own work as well? Do you make that distinction in your own work? The thing is that, um, first of all, there's a lot of variation within Africa, within India, within everywhere. So I don't think it's just a north-south divide. And of course, I didn't spend most of my life in the global north. So, so like, for example, I didn't have a, an overwhelming context of what is usually referred to as white feminism in my development, even though I recognize it and I address it in my work and in our activities, but it has not had that overpowering influence so that my main work has not been to denounce white feminists. Because that is also a generalization. You know, you have, you have anti-imperialist feminists, you have liberal feminists, you have right-wing feminists, interestingly sometimes. And, and I think within the Caribbean, many of the women who were involved, for example, in the formation of CAFRA, the Caribbean Association of Feminist Research and Action, were young women at the time who, as I said, were disenchanted with the various left movements that existed and that organization was formed as a critique. In other words, a lot of the problems that we experience in left organizations about exclusion, inequality, hierarchy, we sought not to represent in our organizations. And therefore, and of course, in, the, in, in Trinidad and Tobago, the Southern Caribbean, we also deal with ethnic differences Oh, and really Indo-Caribbean feminists, Afro-Caribbean feminists, white feminists, but in a different context. So, so we also deal with some of those issues, but they appear in different ways. Um, something that you mentioned really caught my attention, which is that you had to define feminism for yourself. And then you also mentioned having, you know, strong activist roots entering into the academy that shaped how you operated there. So I'm curious about how your background as an activist was useful or what lessons from that were useful as an academic, um, particularly as an academic who was and, and continues to be at the forefront of, of work that, that is not in the mainstream. Well, I think that as an activist, sometimes you have to think out of the box how to get what you need done, done. So, so you have to learn to be strategic. And this is what I always teach my, well, try to teach my students. I'm not sure they got it, but that you, you, you evaluate your environment and then you begin to, but first of all, you see what is possible in the environment. And then you begin to work through that environment strategically. You identify allies, <laughs> you analyze, uh, the way the situation, the power relations exist. And you, you work through it. You, you know, you try to influence, you try to, to shape ideas. And another thing about being an activist is that you also learn how to get things done without huge sets of money, 
So, for example, when I became head of the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at the St. Augustine campus, I was given a secretary, and that was it. I didn't even, I wasn't even given space. I had to use my contacts around the campus to find out where there was empty space and then go and ask for it. And I remember I had a, a girlfriend who was a secretary in chemistry, and I said, you know, how can we get a space? And she told me how to get it, you know. We got that small space. And then when it got too small, I called. I said, we need more space. So she told me how to get more space. And we expanded. And being given very little budget, but, you know, as an activist, you learn how to find money. You raise grants. You offer services for sale. And also, gender studies, of course, was not the most welcomed department. There was a lot of mistrust. There was a lot of disdain. This was in the beginning. And uh, as an academic institution, you also had to show it with visibility, the work that you were doing. So in the end, the people, whether they agreed with you or not, would grudgingly admit, okay, well, it seems that there's some academic substance here. So I think that activist mindset was very important. And also we continue to do campaigns to continue to be involved with the movement because my doctoral supervisor, who was a German feminist, she's still, she's still alive. Maria Mead, she always said that um, academic women's studies has to be linked to the movement or else it loses its raison d'etre. And I think that goes for all these, um, all these movement studies, Africana studies, uh, LGBT studies, you know, they, they can't just exist in an academic space like mathematics, <laughs> you know, they have to have their base. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's important to keep in mind also because a lot of the folks who are practicing decolonial feminism, whether or not they realize it, are are often outside of the, the academic community or on the margins of, of our society. Exactly. Something that I'm I'm wondering, how do you think decolonial feminism can be practiced in, in Western context, particularly by African folks, African communities. I think it's a conversation that I, I hear a little bit about, but it's, it's recent. And it's something that I've heard a lot, mainly among kind of Black and Indigenous solidarity groups, particularly in Canada, when we talk about decolonial feminism. But I, I'm curious, particularly when we talk about African communities, what does decolonial feminism look like uh, for those of us who are situated in, in the global north? Well, decolonial feminism is a broad hat, mm. you know. Um, but what is important, and I've been doing a lot of work on this, is that people in Europe now doing that decolonial work are also looking at something I'm looking at, which is knowledge production. Because one of the biggest problems is that the scholarship by people living in the South is very much marginal to global scholarship. In other words, most of these Southern scholars who we recognize as the big stars, they're living in the North. Um, what of the knowledge production that takes place in the South? And I think that is something very important for scholars, decolonial scholars in the North, black and white or whatever, to think about what does your reading list look like? Where do you go? to understand a complex problem. For those of us in the South, we have to read everything in the North as well as the South and as well as our region. So that is a responsibility to really 
be a truly global scholar and not have a limited understanding and training our students also to do that. Um, one thing that has impressed me is that in Germany, there is a decolonial movement. They usually draw the Latin Americans, uh, Tiano, Lagunes, etc. But also there are some Europeans who are also seen as leaders in the field. So, and the thing is that Germany is very distant from its colonial past. So people even forget that they were a colonial, a colonizing country. But these young people have started what they call decolonial um, walk. But I think the first one was building decolonial. And what they did is they studied the roots of colonialism and coloniality in Berlin. Then it spread to Frankfurt, and then it spread to Gießen, which is where I had a visiting fellowship and got to really know more about this. Like, for example, in Frankfurt, you can go on a decolonial walk through Frankfurt. You know, they can show you where the big companies that benefited from colonialism, where the buildings are, and give you a background. They could tell you about uh, people from the South who came to the North and who became part of, like, performing groups. You know, Black people who were, like, specimens circulated about. So, in other words, the next thing you do is you you do challenge the coloniality in your own space. And I think in Canada, there's a lot of space for that. Wonderful. Uh, well, listen, you may not know this because a lot of students sometimes may not tell you this, but you have a, a large following of individuals who have been inspired by you. I, I know that because your, your writings and so on, well known in the Caribbean, uh, but even in North America, you know, in Canada, we have people who have been inspired by your work. But who inspired you? Because you, you were kind of a pioneer in this area of gender and development. Uh, so who inspired you? Uh, who should listeners look into to further understand decolonized uh, feminist thought? Uh, Ashwood Garvey. We will talk about her. They talk about the other Garvey. <laughs> but she sometimes get, get lost in the shuffle. Uh, so who are the other women who have, have been hidden from mainstream discourses of Pan-Africanism that you can point to? Okay, well, uh, my doctoral dissertation was a labor and social history of women in Trinidad and Tobago. And I did that because when we were young feminists, we always used to hear from our colleagues, you know, it's probably still said, you know, that feminism is something for white women, you know, black women are interested in food and water. And, and, you know, I said, I thought that's impossible. There's no oppressed group that ever accepts its subordination. So there must be a history of struggle and resistance in our part of the world. And so I began looking at early Caribbean feminisms, you know, and you, you could find them in Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, already by the 19th late 19th centuries, and there were women's organizations, but very middle class and not very radical. But, but still, so were the feminists in Europe at the time as well. But then digging deeper into the Trinidad and Tobago history, I found that many of the early feminist women 
were influenced by Pan-African ideas. In Trinidad, I identified two women. The first was a grassroots activist, Elma Francois, born in St. Vincent, migrated to Trinidad as a domestic worker, um, got involved in the Trinidad Labour Party, but then got more radicalized and they formed their own organization. But they were in touch with persons in the U.S. Communist Party. They had campaigns for the Scottsboro Boys. They led the local campaign against the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this woman who was a Vincentian. And I don't know if you know, but I was born in St. Vincent. My father was Vincentian, but my mother is from, and I spent most of my life here. So I was very intrigued by her. And my very first publication was a biography of her. It's called Elma Francois, the Negro Welfare, Cultural and Social Organization. And that little booklet has been so important because it gave so much information about the movement at that time. And Emma Francois was more socialist oriented. So their organization was in Negro welfare. So they focused on the racism, the social position of black people, et cetera. And also Emma Francois organized women into an organization called the Condensed Milk Association the campaign to carry down the price of condensed milk. She also worked on the rights of domestic workers and things like that. She was my first inspiration. And then later on, there was the middle-class woman, Audrey Jeffers. And Audrey Jeffers was, was quite the opposite. She was a very wealthy Black woman. She lived in Sinclair, but she was definitely a feminist. She she organized women throughout the country. She campaigned for scholarships for girls to go to school and much more liberal. She, she complained about racism in employment. She petitioned the Moyne Commission. She called for women police. She was the first woman to be elected to the Port of Spain City Council. But then later on, she voted against universal adult suffrage. So, so she was clearly an excellent example of that liberal feminist believes in women's rights, but does not believe in broader equality and challenge of class systems. So, so these women really inspired me. And then when I went further afield, because we then got a larger regional project, and then you found out about in Jamaica, you had Amy Bailey, uh, Una Marson, also influenced by the Garvey movement. And as I said in, in a talk I gave some time ago, that the Garvey movement in its structure ensured places and spaces for women that other organizations did not beforehand. And of course, that was Amy's doing. So the Garvey movement was a very important consciousness-raising mechanism for women, especially middle-class women, in the 1930s and 40s in the English-speaking Caribbean and possibly elsewhere because they were very strong in other places as well. So you mentioned that you kind of had to look for, for the stories of these women yourself, that, that these weren't things that were presented to you. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, you had to look for them. Yes, you had to definitely search for them. So I'm curious about when you kind of first noticed this gap in, in development studies and feminist studies and, and why now... Uh, still, 
that, you know, it's so important to center identity and, and gender in this kind of work? Well, let me get back to Amy Ashwood, because it was actually when I was doing my research on Trinidad and Tobago that I first came across Amy Ashwood Garvey. Because she came to Trinidad twice in the 1920s, about two years after she divorced from Garvey. She came with her new partner, Sam Manning, who was a Trinidadian Calypsonian. And he made some very kind of anti-sexist public statements that were recorded in the press. And then in 1953, she came back and did a tour. She was doing a regional tour. She went to Guyana. She went to Barbados. She came to Trinidad. And middle-class women, primarily feminists, organized for her to give talks. And she spoke about anti-racism, but she also spoke about women. And she, she called on educated women to take their place. And she identified herself as a feminist. And she also identified Audrey Jeffers, who she had met in London, as a leading feminist in Trinidad and Tobago at the time. So this was also something I found that the language of feminism was already in use since the 1920s. So that was very important. So it wasn't a late 20th century implant into the region. So that's when I first met Amy Ashwood Garvey. And she was also a close friend of Sylvia Pankhurst, the British feminist. And when she came to Trinidad in 1953, she tried to publish a book she had written on Liberia, Liberia Land of Promise, but she never did. And of course, that is one of her weaknesses that she never really, very few of what she wrote was published. But Sylvia Pankhurst wrote the introduction and I was able to locate either the full or part of that introduction, as well as the proposed cover for the book. So based on that, I wanted to know more. And that's why I wrote a paper called The First Mrs. Garvey and Others, Early Feminism in the British Colonial Caribbean. And I wrote it on Amy Astrid Garvey, Audrey Jeffers, and Una Masson. But it took a long time to be published. I gave it at a conference. And, and then Feminist Africa approached me to publish just the Ashwood Garvey part of it. It's an online journal, Feminist Africa. And the paper is now in a new book on critical race and gender studies, edited by Shirley Ann Tate, <coughs> who is now at the University of Alberta. So that, that paper was a long time in gestation. Wonderful. Uh, well, listen, you know, in, in terms of the, the relationship between and the intersection between gender, uh, decolonization, pan-African feminism, what urgent paths and questions have been unexplored, you think, uh, both in terms of decolonization, uh, pan-African feminism, as well as gender development studies? Well, you know, since that heady time of the 70s, by the late 80s, the Caribbean, certainly, and eventually the entire world entered a period of global neoliberalism, which influenced a great deal, both the economics and the politics, as well as the social policy. I think that a lot of the critical feminism of the, of the seventies, it is, it's not as strong as it was at that time. 
But I think a new generation of feminists emerging, which is great. And certainly in the Caribbean, they're also very strong. But I think in North America, probably Canada, it's much more critical than it is here. And in terms of the prevailing understandings of global inequality, neoliberalism has brought a very kind of individualistic approach to social change. It's very much change in the individual as opposed to change in the society. And therefore, a lot of the contemporary politics has to do with uh, personal politics, uh, identity, which is fine. That's wonderful. But I think that bearing in mind the, the, the challenges that are facing the world at this time, that we need a much more, uh, you know, that kind of social, political, economic consciousness. There's some of it, I think. I think in, in, the, in the United States, there's some very good groups that, that work on things like uh, militarism, on peace, on, uh, on inclusion, on inequality, on including anti-racism, anti-sexism. I think it's growing, it's improving, but I would just like to see a bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we're kind of wrapping up our, our chat a little bit, I think we have a, a big question that that the podcast in general is kind of seeking to, to unpack this season, which is how can we look to decolonize our our university curriculum, the, the, the school that I went to in Edmonton um, is, is obviously situated in, in a very Western kind of Eurocentric context. And so how do we, how do we go about taking steps towards, towards decolonization in, in that context? I think that's a really important question. And it's not just a question for those of you in the North. It's also a question for those of us in the South, because our curriculum is also very much colonized. I think it's been recolonized because I think during the period of the 60s and 70s, there was a conscious action to develop our own scholarship, to develop a critical scholarship, to engage with our people outside of institutions in rural communities and urban communities. And for example, the New World Group, I think is an excellent example of that decolonial scholarship that we could go back to. It wasn't feminist. That's his biggest critique. But I think it's an excellent example of decolonial scholarship. And in fact, Walter Mignolo identifies the New World Group as part of the origin of decolonial thinking. So, and that's important because we also have to look for the origins of decolonial thinking in the global South. And I have identified, for example, the, um, the Bandung Conference, of which we don't speak a lot about, which was a major historical milestone of decolonial praxis. And then, of course, the New World Group was another. And there were others. So I think that, first of all, we have to recognize our decolonial heritage. Decoloniality, the term, it's like intersectionality. It's a new term but it's a praxis that existed many decades before. I think the biggest critique of those praxis, as I mentioned, is the feminist critique. And of course, one could link it also with the LGBT critique. So I think that's important to recognize. But I think that um, on those other issues, 
that is a, an important heritage for us to build. And in fact, there are some European universities who are, who are recognizing that and beginning to work on that scholarship at a time when we ourselves still have not done enough in those unrecognizing our own decolonial traditions. So I think that's important, recognizing the history of decolonial thought. And that's why there's another paper which I wrote in current sociology. I don't know if you saw that. Radical Caribbean Social Thought. Uh, where I look at the work of um, Caribbean thinkers of that earlier era. And of course, there was C.L.R. James, there was Padmore, there was Oliver Cromwell Cox, um, the whole pantheon before that of Garvey, Blyden, and all of those Caribbean radical thinkers, many of whom were Pan-Africanists. But then Claudia Jones, Amy Ashwood Garvey, Etc. So, and that paper was very important because it, it established that critical scholarship that existed and that emerged very early, including from people who never attended university. It was like a indigenous intellectualism, which I think is a very important tradition for us to recognize and acknowledge. And that's that's interesting. A lot of that happened outside of the. Uh, the university setting. Exactly, outside of the university setting. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. This is wonderful. I, I, I really enjoyed uh, having this time with you. And, um, you know, when we thought about our season three, I thought about you right away. And, and I remember that, that great conference in Johannesburg where you did a very beautiful presentation on Amy Ashwood Garvey. And I had to admit, I, I didn't know very much about her either. So it was nice to have um, have you there at that conference in, in Johannesburg. And, uh, you know, and again, your contributions to the University of West Indies, now that you have moved on, <laughs> so, so to speak, from, from the administrative uh, uh, journey at the University of the West Indies, I think you left a legacy uh, with gender and development studies, uh, both in terms of the, at the Institute in St. Augustine, the University of West Indies, also in Mona and Cable Campus as well. So thank you very much for, for joining us on this talk. Thank you very much for having me and all the best for the series. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to, to learn from you. I don't think I, I'll be alone among other viewers who are interested in the field, but still very kind of, you know, novice in, in our role, just um, learning from folks like you who've done work in and outside of the classroom is, is incredibly useful for me. And um, yeah, so this is, this was great. I mean, just personally, I think I, I learned a lot. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. So thank you very much, Rhoda, and I appreciate uh, the time we had to together today. Thank you. Bye and good luck. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsors, KIAS, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies, and the Provost Office at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias at ualberta.ca. Our show is co-hosted by Andy Knight and Abigail Isaac. Our show producer is Nicolas Amais, and its technical production is by Tom Merklinger. Our theme music is by Dyson Knight, and the graphic design is by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced 
at the University of Alberta.